0: This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. This time of year, you usually, and you know what, anymore, I don't know if it is just this time of year, but especially at this time of year, you have to go to a shopping center parking lot, and you play that game of, all right, you drive around, and oh, there comes a person. They're not in a car. They're carrying bags. They look like they might be going to a ca- Okay. All right. All right. Uh So if we turn around here and we turn up that lane, should be able to follow them. Oh, look. All right. Oh, they're not getting into a car. They're going to the bus stop. And you have to follow someone to their car. And you hope that's how you can get a spot. Because it is that busy. And usually shopping centers like White Oaks Mall are are just like that. Well... At this time of year during COVID, things are a little bit different. When a pandemic is in place, when we're now into red zone restrictions, uh, let's learn a little bit what shopping centers are dealing with. Jeff Wilson joins us, General Manager of Retail Services at White Oaks Mall. Jeff, thanks for taking some time for us today. Hi, Mike. Uh, Thanks for having me. Please tell me that you have a designated parking spot so i'm not worried about you uh, normal times of the year uh, trying to follow people around with bags to say okay i, I got to get there it's 5 minutes before i got to be in there <laughs> ah.
1: no i don't have a ded- dedicated spot i find a spot like everyone else but you know the same trick that works for me works well for everyone else too and it's come early come in the morning <laughs> when it's not busy you can find any spot you want pull into one close to the door and you're good to go from there
0: Well, we do know that there are a few changes. Let's help shoppers who are getting set to either continue their holiday shopping or, uh, if you're somebody like me, start their holiday shopping. Let's help us all do this safely. The move to red, it does mean some changes. What would those main ones be?
1: So the main thing that people will notice is our food court. Unfortunately, our food court seating is now closed, uh, but all our retailers, all our food retailers remain open for takeout service, uh, they're available through delivery service, through, you know, Uber Eats or DoorDash, skip the dishes, that type of thing. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where they'll see the most because right now all our chairs are, are taped off or removed from the food court so you can't actually sit in the mall and eat. Uh, which is unfortunate. You know, we're trying to support, support those food court tenants and the local operators that, uh, run the restaurants. Outside of that, if you had been in the mall last week under orange compared to this week under red, there's not a lot of difference. Um, there's a few things <clears throat> that came into effect in orange, like the music was lowered in the mall and in each store so you didn't have to speak very loudly to uh, you know, and, and push out more air. Um, and, uh, and, and in the stores, uh, really what you see is fitting rooms. Uh, adjacent fitting rooms had to be closed so you couldn't have two fitting rooms right beside each other. And the stores have managed to help uh, customers out by, you know, a lot of them extended return policies or augmented the return policies so that people can buy an item and and have some assurance that if they get home and try it on, they don't like it, doesn't fit, that they're able to bring it back and, and get a return on that.
0: We're talking right now with Jeff Wilson, General Manager of Retail Services at White Oaks Mall. Okay, as shoppers, how do we help out? Because there are occupancy levels for stores. There could be lines. What's going to make everybody safe that maybe doesn't fit into the rules that we should be keeping in mind when we walk into a shopping center?
1: Well, as I said off the start, you know, the biggest thing is, and, and what we've noticed the most and how people have been smart about their shopping this year, is to come in the off hours. If you have a day off, if you work shifts, or uh, if you can just sneak off early from work, coming to the mall at, you know, say 10 o'clock when we open, or mid-afternoon, on a weekday is a lot better than coming at two o 'clock on Saturday, and people have done that People have uh, either consciously or subconsciously them- themselves thought i 'm going to try to avoid that i 'm going to spread out my shopping i 'm going to find those off peak hours you know it 's great even on Google now if you go- if you Google White Oak Mall and look at the little uh, um, uh, pro profile they have of the mall it 'll tell you if when the busy times are, and you can uh, plan your day plan your shopping trip so that you avoid those busy times and so that one, you're helping, uh, helping all the retailers out so that there's not a, a crush of people here uh, when, uh, when they come, and you're helping yourself out because you're avoiding those peak times. And then on the peak times, of course, we, uh, we have all our lines distanced properly, and we're ready at any moment to, if we have to, restrict access into the mall so that we make sure we maintain safe occupancy levels.
0: And is that simply just how many people happen to be in the mall at the same time? That's right. Just to
1: make sure that if we ever got to the point where there was too many people so you couldn't distance uh, appropriately, we would uh, before we got to that point, we would limit the people that could come in, make sure that a, a sufficient number of people leave before a new, new group of people come in
0: excellent and if we're just going rule of thumb usually just the way our part of the world works if you're in kind of a a traffic heavy area you keep right and we do that on the roads tends to work pretty well on the roads is that something that would help flow in the shopping center
1: yeah and we've got signage throughout the mall uh both on the floor and on pop-up signage that reminds customers to keep right it's uh it's you know not only common nature but it's it's the law on the roads uh it's not the law in the mall i mean uh, we don't have traffic police giving tickets but we do have security reminding people to keep right um and just reminding them just so when you come out of a store if you're going to the right you know stay on the right side of the mall if you're going to the left cross over to the other side and stay that way and it just reduces any face-to-face contact that we might have with uh, other customers
0: great stuff how about masking and shopping centers
1: so we require masks in the shopping center, and, and you know, the customers, uh, n- no one necessarily likes wearing it, but everyone does it. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's just what we have to do now to make sure that everyone's safe. We always say, you know, our, our, uh, it's really to protect our employees as well. Our, our, our staff, our store staff are wearing masks in the mall for, you know, up to eight hours a day. And, and as a customer who comes in for a, you know, half hour or two hour shopping trip, it's the least you can do to help keep everyone safe.
0: Jeff, thanks so much for the time and the updates. Really appreciate it. Please keep safe and all the best. You
1: too, Mike. Thanks a lot.
0: That's Jeff Wilson. Jeff is the General Manager of Retail Services at White Oaks Mall. So if you're heading out shopping, those are some things that you need to know about your trip to the mall. Not much different from Orange into red except for the food court closing which that's top of the white oaks mall that's a great food court is there you know that's I, w- I would like to see the the food court awards do we have those i should have asked jeff because i think you'd get a lot of people nominating white Oaks Mall for that but at the same time not a lot of change it's just about respecting space within the shopping centers you know people are going to be going there make sure you're doing the things that you've got to do We had an opportunity earlier today to talk with somebody who this affects on a number of fronts because she's the owner of Northmore Catering. She's the owner of the Rhino Lounge. She's the co-owner of Crab Pharmacy. So involved in all kinds of restaurant and catering activity, Jessica Jay-Z Spolstra. And we wanted to get her thoughts on this and talk a little bit about what this means for restaurants because Jessica is somebody who... Hey, she goes with the flow, and she has been going with the flow, as so many business owners have been from the beginning. But I asked her today if she got up early and you know started breaking out a calculator to try and figure out exactly what to do with restrictions like this. Did she have to have a calculator handy?
2: It's just, you know, basically for catering, we're just doing a lot of deliveries, office deliveries. A lot of the people that had booked Christmas parties have canceled. However, they're still getting their three courses delivered to their home or having people pick it up. Or on Friday, we delivered, you know, 50 meals to a family law group, and then they disperse them to all the staff and wish them all Merry Christmas. So people are finding, you know, safe ways to still to still do things and also still support uh, restaurants and catering
1: businesses.
0: What has it been like going through some of the changes and kind of the extra purchases and the extra PPE and the extra cleaning and extra 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 how's that gone over the past nine months you still doing all right
2: oh yeah you know like it's one of those things First of all, we want our community to be safe, you know. We also we we want uh we don't want any cases like every time um a company is is listed in the paper is having it there. I'm like, "Oh, ah! you know, it's one of those things that makes you gasp and and none of our staff nor nor us do we ever want, you know, any covid cases um coming out of our, any of our facilities. So all of our staff are very diligent too. They they basically go to work, go home, see very few people, keep their bubbles small. And um, you know, we're we're just diligent. We've been going above and beyond uh, since Actually, when we started patio dining, we started taking people's temperatures and contact tracing for every single person, not just the one person in the party, as they required. So we were trying to make people feel safe and make them come here and know that we were going above and beyond and just doing that little extra. And I know a bunch of restaurants are doing that as well.
0: If you look at, at that whole process, obviously, you know, guests coming in, it's been new for them too. How have they dealt with it typically?
2: They've been great. We've actually only had one person at Crab Pharmacy a few weeks ago that when we went to take her temperature, she freaked out and left. So and even her husband was like, I don't understand why she's doing this. (laughs) And uh, but that's really the only issue we've had. Everyone has been really understanding. They've been really supportive and they've been really welcoming for for all the safety measures because, hey, like no one wants COVID. Right. So we're all just trying to do our best part.
0: When you look at, say, the next 28 days and hopefully not beyond that, what are you seeing? We've had some restaurants say, I don't know whether we can keep the doors open. We've had fitness clubs say, you know, it's, it's almost in our best interest to close them and then reopen in 28 days. How are you doing with all of that?
2: Well, we've been around for quite a few years, and we have a good following. So so the good news is that we came into this with a healthy bank account, um, and, and we are getting uh, the subsidies from the government. So those things really help. And, and also, a lot of my staff, they're salaried staff. Um, some of them are single parents. If I were to lay them off, they wouldn't be able to afford you know, Christmas presents or, or be able to afford life, you know, because rent is so expensive, food costs are so expensive, everything's so expensive. So it's one of those things where we do take a loss every month, and I'm okay. Okay with that like we're not hemorrhaging but we've got money in the bank account we are taking a loss um but but the the main thing that is really bothersome to me is that I feel restaurants are being unfairly targeted. Um, and, and let me say but first that community, safety of our community is the most important thing to us. However, I feel, um, you know, like I was at Masonville on the weekend, and uh, actually I saw Spaghetti Eddie share a post as well, um, and they had packed food courts with no cleaners or sanitation happening, no distancing of the tables. I went to a bulk-style uh, food, food uh, shop the other day. I'm not going to say which one. And the aisles are so narrow, and they still have, tongues and scoops and everybody's scooping and going and scooping somebody else's and I'm just standing there and I felt so dirty when I walked out I was like sanitizing my hands and like going oh my god like they were you know and and I'm like how can these places be open and yet our places like everyone is seated so far apart it doesn't make sense and then if you look to other provinces so um, British Columbia and Alberta have actually shared data saying that only one percent of COVID cases are traced back to restaurants and 40 percent are linked to to households and social gatherings. So it, it suggests that restaurants aren't causing the spread of COVID. And, it, you know, and, and it's just really unfortunate that we just keep getting a bad rap. And, and so that's the frustrating part is that people are afraid when when it actually I don't believe it is coming from us.
0: We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thanks so much and be safe.
3: Thank you. You too.
0: That is Jessica J.C. Spolstra, owner of Northmore Catering, The Rhino Lounge and co-owner of Crab Pharmacy. And it is time for the province to look at data, don't you think? On a number of different things. Take a look at the Windsor-Essex data that shows what they have seen in terms of school spread. At least take a look and reassess and look at businesses like smaller independent businesses, like what restaurants have done, because they are taking a loss for the most part you don't hear any tourists coming out and saying you know covid's actually been pretty good maybe their takeout has gone up but it's not filling what usually is there and there's been larger expenditures on ppe and cleaning it is a tough time and i still want to know how is a score bookstore different than a school it's time to look at things again that's what this pandemic has been all about When we look at immigration, Canada has a a very big role. If you look at things like our birth rate, we don't tend to have enough children on the whole to replace ourselves. Immigration is very important. Now, in terms of how this works, you can look at immigration in so many different ways. But there is a study that has been done at Western University that examines the correlation between the age of the oldest child and immigration mobility within Canada. And that sounds fascinating. I, I always love when little things, when you can say, okay, if you look at this, then, then this. So we get an opportunity to examine this a little more closely, courtesy of the help of Dr. Kate Choi, who who has been a lead on this study. Dr. Choi is the acting director of the Western Centre for Research on Social Inequality. Dr. Choi, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank
3: you very much for having me on your show, Mike.
0: Okay, well, let's, let's dig into this. Um, the family's eldest child becomes a factor in immigration mobility within Canada. So let's lay out what you looked into.
3: So what we looked into using a data set of, uh, immigrants, uh, who came after 2011 was that how, whether or not the age of the oldest child served as an anchor to the place where immigrant families initially settled in Canada. And what we found was that immigrant families with, whose oldest child was an adolescent were significantly more likely to stay in their initial place of settlement than families with younger children as well as families without any children
0: so would we be finding certain areas of the country maybe as places that families who might immigrate to canada might settle and and then you know some would say okay here we are now we're going to move others would say no we're here is there evidence that there are kind of places in Canada where that takes place? Uh,
3: Yes, there is uh, evidence of that in Canada, the immigration patterns are hyper segregated. That is about 66% of immigrants uh, settle in Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver, and over 90% of immigrants settle in the 33 metropolitan areas. So, for individuals who are settling outside of Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, it is often the case that immigrant families settle in these communities for a few years and move into the traditional immigrant enclaves in big cities like Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. So what we are finding is that immigrant families whose oldest child is an adolescent are much more likely to stay put. in in their initial area of settlement.
0: Wow, and this has a major impact because, as we said, immigration is needed in this country because if we have Canadians who are already here and living, we're not typically having enough children to replace ourselves, meaning the labor force is at risk. And if we aren't seeing a number of families who immigrate to Canada moving into different areas, what does that say about those areas? What challenges are they facing?
3: So a lot of the different areas outside of the 33 metropolitan areas currently have labor shortages, and as a result, it could potentially affect their economic growth, particularly now that many different uh, regional economies are trying to recover uh, from the economic fallout from COVID-19.
0: Dr. Kate Choi joining us, acting director of Western Center for Research on Social Inequality as we look at immigration which is something that is such an important tool in this country to maintaining everything that we have kind of built in all of this. So, Dr. Troy, if we're looking at things that may attract families who immigrate to Canada, what sorts of things do we want to make sure exist in communities to make them communities that that wind up having people move there and, and keep that balance of of being able to to keep the workforce stocked, for lack of a better term?
3: So uh, immigrant families, based on prior work, we know that uh, tend tend to be uh, pulled into communities with uh, strong employment numbers, uh, housing costs that are reasonable, as well as uh, places that have strong uh, immigrant settlement uh, systems. such as, uh, language, uh, acquisition programs. We also know that they also tend to gravitate towards areas with safer schools as well as, uh, multicultural community centers.
0: Gotcha. We're talking with Dr. Kate Choi from Western University. We should go back to one of the things we've talked today just about, you know, what gives incentive to certain things. And if we're talking about making changes, well, there's certain things that that incentivize those things. What gave you the incentive to look at this? Is it true that you had looked to the Obama family?
3: That is correct. Uh, So Initially, after uh, Obama uh, left office, uh, he indicated that he was going to stay in Washington, D.C. for two years so that uh, his second daughter, Sasha Obama, could uh, finish high school. So uh, that uh, provided the motivation, and we we wondered whether or not the same would apply for immigrant families in Canada and how that could inform immigrant retention policy for regions with a shortage of labor overall, as well as immigrant labor.
0: That's fantastic. So in conclusion, what do you feel that places that maybe are are not Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver, in other words, London, southwestern Ontario, Atlantic Canada, prairie provinces, what do you feel towns and cities in those areas maybe need to talk about?
3: So one area, uh, one potential way of uh, using some of uh, the insights from our study is that now there are a lot of uh, immigrant, uh, community-specific immigrant uh, policies that are being set up to attract immigrant labor to these particular areas. So one potential area is to alter the criteria uh, for recruiting immigrants and assigning a slightly higher point to families with children, particularly adolescent children, so that they can retain them for longer periods time periods of time. And since immigrant families with children are significantly more likely to actually remain in these particular areas, invest for safer schools as well as language programs that can help uh, immigrant children. Uh, obtain the English proficiency or the French proficiency that they need to be successful in Canada.
0: That's fantastic. Well, Dr. Troy, thank you for being inspired by the Obama family and and looking at this in greater detail because it is such an important tool for Canada. All the best and uh, please stay safe.
3: Thank you very much. Happy holidays.
0: Happy holidays. That is Dr. Kate Choi from Western University. Dr. Choi is the acting director of Western Center for Research on Social Inequality. And so if and you can look at this probably throughout a number of families, the kids get old enough and you think, yeah, we don't want to move now that they're in grade seven or grade nine or whatever it is. And you wind up staying put on. It even goes when your children are older than that. Finish out their studies. And because of that, if you are arriving in Canada, immigrating to Canada, and you start in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal, it's looking as though you have a greater chance of staying there. Meaning, if we are looking at, you know, last week we talked about Italy, where you have some towns that will sell real estate that starts for auction as low as a dollar. Why is that? Because they were not refilling jobs and they were having people move away and they were not having people move in. All those sorts of things took place. And now those towns are ghost towns. This is what they've, they've turned to auction to try to address this. We don't want to get to that point. But at the same time, if you are not Toronto, Vancouver, or Montreal, sorry, what do you have to do to entice families to come and move to your area? What do you need? And that's what this study looks into. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.